The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. You're listening to the Back Home Network, presented by Homefield Apparel. Well, we're here. I'm Bob Motes. Welcome to X's and Joe's, a podcast dedicated to decoding the winning formula in college basketball. And I'm Mike Weemouth. Welcome you to episode three. How were certain rosters constructed for this year and how are they doing? The good, the bad, and the ugly. Recorded on the evening of Wednesday, January 17th, 2024. So, Bob, about last night. <laughs> oh, speaking would, of would, the ugly. Yeah, and the bad. Would you say you feel daunted? No, maybe faltering a bit. Let's go with that. Yeah, maybe faltering a bit. Yeah, yeah. The funny but, thing, you know, for for a whole lifetime, we were promised in song that that would never happen. Never and shall not. Was it shall not? Yeah, yeah. I always say shall not. I mean, or cannot. Yeah. Cannot. We cannot falter. Yeah, and um, you know it. It. it we've been through enough over the years. I remember sitting in the BW threes in Bloomington, watching IU lose by 50 at Minnesota when Damon Bailey's senior season. Um, we've talked about the Kentucky game. We've talked about, you know, we, we talked about the Colorado game that I you know, traveled to. We've talked about a bunch of, you know, and we, we've had multiple copious experiences where the Hoosiers have been dog walked. And I'm old enough to remember the actual game where Bob Knight threw a chair across the, across the, uh, the gym floor. On a, at a Purdue game, I might add. I was watching, yeah. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, I think the whole state was been those years, and they, you know, and 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 it was a thing. But the the one thing I I go back to, and this is something that what's kind of special about being an IU fan is it's a it's a community of people, and we don't always agree. Sometimes we're not always nice to each other. You know, as fans back and forth. Um, but you know, when someone from Purdue goes and yells at one of our own, well, we're there with it. Yeah, we're 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 there going. No, not not our people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, we've been lucky over the years to be parts of multiple IU communities. You know, what we do with the Back Home Network and through Assembly Call uh, and their and their Substack. Mike and I have spent years on Pigs.com. You know, the work that Jeff Rabjohns does over there. Um, and, and Trevor Andershock and that crew and, and, and the guy himself, Mike Peg, uh, Pegram, you know, just really building kind of, kind of rolling the ball. Um, I know you've done some work, you know, inside the hall with Alex Bosich and there's many others. Some are pay, some aren't. We encourage you to consume as much of it as you can, because there's great, they are great places to interact with people who may be as rabid or maybe people where you can kind of uh, get a better idea of what's 
of what's actually going on inside the program and give you a chance to, you know, kind of sound off a little bit in what's usually a fairly safe and moderated environment and also feel supported from time to time, you know, that you're not alone out there, even though the dog's looking at you weird when you're yelling at the TV. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And speaking of uh, our, our extended, uh, Hoosier community, we should probably send a back home network dual shout out to both the the mothership pod, the assembly call on their one thousandth show. They did, I guess it was the last week. Yeah, yeah, I think last it was Thursday. last week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and also our, our siblings over at uh, doing the work for their upcoming one hundredth episode. So uh, so we should um, definitely give. Thanks and shout outs to uh, Kathy, Jeff, Jared, Coach, Ryan, and Andy. So yeah. great stuff. Great stuff. And we're on episode three. So, you know, it's just uh, it's crazy yeah. to think like how much work. I mean, I now understand and appreciate what goes into that, having actually started to do this stuff ourselves. There are people who are like, where's Moats been the last month and a half? Well, you know. <laughs> exactly. You Here's know, I, I was actually. Yeah, I was actually doing uh, the math and and added up the episode counts from Mash, Seinfeld, and the Honeymooners, and if you added all those together, it would still be less than half of all the episodes of Assembly Call. That's amazing. That that that's 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 amazing, and that's you know, and a lot of really high quality content, and a lot of a lot of good relationships, and you know, we're going to be getting a chance to experience that you know through this community. Yeah. Um, upcoming oh, yeah, in a they, couple weeks. Exactly. Yeah. That that's our, our our housekeeping note. The uh the back network meetup is uh is upon us. It's like just less, just short of two weeks away. I guess Saturday, February third at the uh, the upstairs pub. Uh, the game time for the Penn State game, which uh, is before that, is a noon tip, I believe. Yeah, noon. So um yeah, the assembly call boys will be doing their live um post game show up at the upstairs starting, I believe they said it was, they'll give like an hour, I think, um, um, gap in there in terms of allowing everyone to walk over from assembly hall to the assembly call show. So, um, so I think planned for about uh, three o'clock. So, so yeah, I will be, we, I, and we will both be there. <laughs> we will be there. You know, I mean, I've got a little, a little easier time hopping over than some people, but you know, It'd be good yes, to uh, good to hang out with the with the with with Mike here for uh for you know reliving the old days in Bloomington and our old haunt of downtown around Kirkwood. Yes, exactly. We we will be at a fine uh, cigar shop that we we're very uh, familiar with, and uh, it's kind of our our usual uh, tradition whenever we get together in Bloomington. So, if people do happen to see us downtown, they can certainly stop by and say hello if they uh, yeah. if they're into cigars in the uh, in the quad area there. <laughs> Let us know. Yep, um, and, and 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 again, there's there 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 are a couple of people we desperately need to thank. Um, the sound and look of this podcast uh, owes a great deal first to Bob, you know, to Bob Thompson for our opening and the sounds that you hear that that really kind of capture when we first heard them and we you know, worked through them, really captured what we were looking for from the get go. And then when we saw our, our, you know, and that's Bob Thompson who who was responsible for that, and um, John Ringer of RingDesign.com for designing the logos that you see that are just again 
really just on message and on point and couldn't be happier and more thankful and grateful to the two of them. And we definitely owe them a, a beverage or two for what they've done for us in getting this going. So absolutely. Thank yep, you. Absolutely. Huge. Thank you to the two, to, to the two of you uh, for, for your hard work for really a lot of us in that, in the network. Um, yep. So Mike saw that you got a really cool new year's gift. Well, absolutely. Yeah. It's um, I was very happy. Um, you know, for my Christmas uh, list, I, I'd politely asked slash begged Santa to steal me a copy of the um, that 600-page manifesto written by uh, Connor Stallions, you know, on his, uh, his detailed plan to seize the reins of leadership within Michigan. But uh, sadly, the, uh, the jolly fat man did not come through for me on, on that one. But uh, but I came through from Michigan in other ways. So yes, exactly. Like, yes, you did it. You didn't need the six hundred pages, Connor. You just didn't need them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> maybe that maybe maybe that was the secret plan somehow. So uh. <laughs> yeah, but um, but something did come through um, as far as a gift um, arriving last week in my mailbox from Home Field Apparel, our mutual pal. Uh, O'Haynes, aka Nola Hoosier, he sent me this, and I'll lean up a little bit. It is a 1993 Charlie Ward FSU basketball football dual T-shirt, and it is awesome. And I was quite, quite happy to get it. Um, full disclosure: I was a, a rabid FSU and Bobby Bowden fan back in my younger days, and um, and yeah, the more from this uh del the delivery pouch that came from home field uh the shirt brought brought back all those memories of the uh of that era in seminal football history the the 93 title team with Charlie Ward you know as the Heisman quarterback the i guess the 50 points i remember that uh, the Knowles hung on Michigan up at the big house and all the full bag of Bowden trick plays that uh, made me a devoted follower back in my my teen uh, days back in Terre Haute. So, 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 so I, I I I remember you in the Indiana Memorial Union at the pool tables with a with with a with a Florida State hat. Mm -hmm. You know that you that that you, that you wore. Like, like I knew where I knew Mike. Yeah, you know, I knew Mike was there. I could just tell from the back because there would be one Seminoles hat that was in that area, and there was Mike and. Yeah, yeah. Whenever you go to, and, home I, field, and I would be at the pool tables. That's true. Uh, incredibly good with the stick, I might add. Um, <laughs> but again, anytime you go to home field, that's that's the feeling you get. And as you're looking back at those eras of when we were growing up, and also watching the Hoosiers beat Charlie Ward in the NCAA tournament, that was always fun to do because he true. was one of the last football basketball guys to to really play the the way that he did. Yeah. But home field really does a great job of capturing those eras um, for multiple schools throughout the United States. And um, honestly, it's uh, it, it was just I was I was so tickled for you getting that because I just remember how much I remember sitting in Memorial Stadium watching IU play Ball State and Cam Cameron set up the Florida State throwback play. And then we were doing the tomahawk chop up in the stands. <laughs> I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. they were throwing it back to Jay Rogers. I mean. That's, you know, and that's the sort of feeling that, you know, when you put a shirt on from home field, you know, that you, that, 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 that you get. So. Yeah, exactly. And um, I guess what, you know, the next holiday 
thing we just did got through with Christmas. So uh, Valentine's is approaching. So uh, maybe if you want to get your special someone a, a wearable gift that uh, features their favorite college team or alma mater, um, that is, uh, I would definitely recommend Home Field. So if you want to get, if you want to give anyone a, a similar walk down memory lane, I would highly recommend checking out all the great gear they have at at homefieldapparel.com. So, Bob, let's, um, how about we jump in? So, high-performing roster, a simple yet a very difficult thing to do. Um, and, you know, what it really comes down to is, you know, the, you know the, 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 the premise of the show, you know, is it the X's and O's or Jimmy's and the Joe's? But um, so many times over the years when things are going not well in a program, and particularly Indiana, you we run ourselves yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like like today. Um, there's a there's a conversation of what's missing, and it kind of goes into this, and we kind of go into this sort of. Um, we're big fans of the of Monty Python and the Life of Brian, where they follow the shoe, and the shoe followers go this way, and follow the gourd, and the gourd followers go this way, and we get in these camps where it's well, it's this, or we need that, or the talent, you know, we need more shooting like we've had yeah. with Jimmy Rail or it's you know, an we either need, it's an either or construction. An either or we need a Jamal Meeks to bring this all together. And that you catch that sometimes, and that's kind of the false argument because we know a lot of the fan base is a heck of a lot smarter in how they look at this. Mm-hmm. But um oftentimes, you know, there's this thing of, well, why are we so broken? Why are we the island of misfit toys? And when you look at the classic Rankin and Bass work of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, you know, it's just, there's this belief that, well, you have these groups. So, you know, you have the, the, the perfect toys over here that Santa drops off. And then the rest of them are outcasts who are misfits. But in reality, what we found is that, you know, Moneyball kind of quotes this too: the idea that there's a whole group of misfits that can come together and create a winning roster. What we find is that's usually more the case that there's a lot of there's really not a binary sort of good player, bad player, ugly player. There's players that do good things, players that do bad, the player will do bad things and the player that does ugly things. And so when everyone's, you know, so we all should be singing. We're a bunch of misfits. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think when, when you and I always talk about this, I, I think I frequently bring this up that, you know, in, in talking about roster construction, the term I'm most apt to use is trade-offs you know the the hard reality in recruiting is that coaches don't get every feature or skill set they want in a player even for the legends you know or the high up ranks of like the likes of you know jay wright and, and tom Izzo. so you'll you'll often see those like coaching interviews where the coaches are asking you know like what do you want in a player and the usually gives some kind of very boring kind of boilerplate answer like you know well i want discipline i want high iq athleticism ball skills kids that are great teammates and my i always think that well who doesn't like you know what coach doesn't want all of those things and i mean i've actually just wished that someday like you know some coach just comes right on the air and just honestly says, you know, well, personally, I really want a bunch of slow, dumb, undisciplined guys that, you know, try to steal their teammates or friends because it's, it's, it's just not something that's actually distinguishing um, yourself in terms of like the decisions you have to make as coach. 
if you could just go on the like amazon.com and just you know find yourself a player that has every single feature that you could possibly want then obviously there would be no point in actually doing any scouting because it could be just done you know at a click so in a way you know the public answers tell you very little but what coaches actually do behind the scenes is in terms of their choices on who they recruit and who they don't recruit is actually very interesting so i mean they all have some kind of personal notion of the kinds of rosters that they want and they're and have some sense of what their path of success is you know going to look like the more relevant question for coaches i think is something like you know coach what areas of the game do you want to excel at above all others and what facets are you willing most willing to sacrifice to uh, to achieve that excellence and and those offer lists tell you a lot they really they really do oh, yeah. and how the roster is built and how they're deployed tells you a lot also um you know tony bennett and shaka smart are rarely ever looking at the same guy um mm. they and, and a lot of times it's rooted not just in offensive philosophy uh, it's rooted in defensive philosophy. And yeah. I'll grant you that oftentimes coaches will say, well, the kid can shoot. And mm-hmm. as Paul Ferguson, the varsity basketball at Columbus North and spent some time up at Wheaton, uh, Wheaton College and Wheaton Academy up in uh, Chicago will tell you, you know, good, good shooting absolves you of many basketball sins. Um, so they'll look at some, they'll, 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 they'll look at, well, they can, if they can shoot the ball really well and defend the way I want to defend and play the type of game that I want to play fitting into a system as well as some of the personality things that come into play. Mm-hmm. Then you're looking at you 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 start getting an idea of what a what a coach's type is. And as we kind of go into the rosters here a little later you're going to see how those kind of you know that you're going to see some differences as well as some similarities, but really some differences as to what that type looks like. But um there really aren't too many binary paths. You know, there's not that yes, no, you know, or mm. it's, it's sometimes I can, okay, these good things are good enough that I, and the bad I can live with enough and I can get better to being ugly enough to be, to be functional. I I mean, yeah. I can make this kid functional, which is again, why you see coaches value experience sometimes over just raw talent. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, we can take a look at um, you know the the sample I think in which we can demonstrate this, and uh, I'll pull this up for. Uh, and th- this is again for the our uh, the folks that are just listening on audio only pod. Uh, we'll post uh, the slides that we have in the show notes uh, for people to see if they want to check it out uh, on their own time. But so in this. You know, and this is a little bit of a, a tease for our upcoming episode four when we get fully into the concept of the sweet spot in recruiting. But we'll only give just a small peek here to demonstrate this point specifically for, for roster construction. Uh, because we're focusing on, I guess, more elite teams in this episode, we'll, we'll note the most common trade-off for those banner-chasing types of squads in terms of roster construction, which is this... Uh, this talent versus experience trade-off. Um, owing to the the one-and-done rule, the NBA, uh, coaches at the upper echelons have typically have a kind of hard choice to make. Do you focus on those truly gifted top 20 kids that you know might leave after one year and, and jump to league, or you take those kids that are that that one level lower? 
and we're slightly, let's say, less um, productive as freshmen, but we'll stay around longer and actually start to develop um, into the kind of players that uh, compete for national championships. So, so can you tell us a little bit about the measurement you're using, the evaluative tool you're using, box plus minus? Exactly, BPM? yeah. Yeah, I was just about to get to that, but uh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, so BPM box plus minus, it's simply an estimate of a player's um, total contribution in points above the quote-unquote average college basketball player per 100 possessions. That's the, the standard um, definition of the, of the term. Basically, the higher the score, the better the player in this example. So in the average player, I've, I have not seen the actual calculation, but what I understand is that technically the average player in college basketball should be at a zero, and they are measured whether they are contributing more than um, the midpoint of points above or below that line. So, so if you're at least above, let's if you have a BPM of say two or three or four, you're at least somewhat above the average basketball player in, in college basketball. And if you're obviously you're below in the negative, then you are below that uh, that fifty uh, fifty line. And, and it measures offense and defense with a whole. Yes, it does. Yeah, okay. they, they have it split out, so they're actually like there's an OBPM and a DPPM. So one for offense and defense, and the one we're looking at is basically the sum of both of those that gives us this total BPM score. So, but uh, yeah, basically it's it's just a relative strength measure for bas- college basketball players. I mean, it's um it's not perfect. Uh, there's you know, there's no perfect uh, measurement score in a lot of the statistical analysis that I do, but uh, I do find that at least this one, it's at least reasonable at measuring the relative performance of players when you compare them against each other. And it is something that's a little bit more advanced than its uh, close cousin, the plus minus score, which uh, uh, for our purposes is not very useful. And frankly, it's more of a hockey statistics than it is for basketball. So. Yeah, so this uh, so this example I pulled up here. This is the um, a, um, a comparison of the BPM or basically the the performance average for Baylor's 2021 uh, national championship championship team versus the four year one and done average BPM for all the one and done players drafted between 2019 and 2022. So what this chart demonstrates here, and you see like two separate lines um, on this chart. The one on the top left-hand side is the average for one-and-done players and their BPM performance. Theirs averages out to 6.15. Typically, if we're thinking about BPMs, um, five is pretty decent to good. Um, if once you get up to like seven, eight, nine, you're starting to get into like really upper echelon players, and then anything above 10, you're starting to get into like uh, all American candidates. Superman. Yeah, exactly. Um, so in this example, um, one and done's are uh, averaging a 6.15 BPM over that uh, four year period. If you look at Baylor, who won the championship in uh, 21, they're starter core there are five starters go back let's say two years from when they won the national championship in this example let's call it year one their average bpm is 2.82 which is well below that of the one and done so 
where you can see that the one and dones early on are the better options. They they will come into college and simply outperform most any like underclassmen, you know, typically sophomore and freshman. That is, let's say, in the the you know either whether in the sweet spot or even further below. They're they are the best players by definition. What you but what the advantage that uh, kicks in for the uh, the sweet spot players is that they will stay. One and done players are gone. That's why you see in this example, the one and dones are um, their performance is signified by a in year one, and then there is no continuation. Um, you'll see if you're looking at this slide, there's a just a uh, dotted uh, arrow upward indicating NBA development, which signifies that yes, these players will be getting better, but their improvement will be happening in the NBA, not in college. For Baylor, in this example, once they go from year one, they pop up to year two, they're already up at 7.8. So they're already 1.6 above um, the one and dones from the year prior in that second year. By the time they get to third year, in this example, that's the national championship year, they're at 9.1. Around nine is typically what you see for like final four national championship teams. And so the variance is already up, you know, of like 3.13 in this example. This some is of that, some of that kind of helps going. explain why you'll see, you know, a Kentucky or a Duke with a bunch of guys that, you know, that 6.15 or that they're kind of in that six level. They may lose a sweet 16 game or an elite eight game because they're going up against tougher competition. They may have players that will eventually be better, but have been in the system a little longer, work better together and also have more college skill you know, college level skill where they're, you know, they're, they're, they're able to counter counters better. They're able to defend at a higher level. Uh, they have a better college body or a better adult body. So you see that. I mean, I think that that's one of the explanations as to sometimes why the one and done teams, the heavily stacked one and done teams haven't just every year, you don't know, see a Duke or a Kentucky or a Memphis at the top of the list. Of course. Yeah. And it's, it's also just, um, it's just a reality of the performance improvement curve that you see with uh, all college basketball players mm-hmm. is that if you, if you looked at the, um, the performance log for uh, players from their freshmen to ju- sophomore juniors and seniors, you see this like nice, you know, sort of like upswinging curve and performance for basically all players. You don't see like cases where kids like start way up, you know, high of freshmen and then like drop, down to when they're seniors that does happen but generally if you if you aggregated all of the uh the performance um measures for college basketball players you'll see like there's just this nice you know curve that goes upward from their freshman to their their senior year and basically no matter what teams you look at um that make it to the let's say the final four national championship games you see the same thing um i'm throwing up this example up here this is uh sorry go back this is Michigan State's 2000, let's see, that's the uh, 2019 team, which was their last Final Four team, against, again, the um, the four-year one-and-done average. Sparty starts out two years before they make the Final Four. Their core is at uh, 3.92. Year one year before the national the um, Final Four, they're up to 8.17. And then finally in their... Uh, their payoff year, the final four, they're at uh, 9.0. So this is. And remember, 
And remember that 9.0 number, guys, because it may come back. There may be a quiz a little later, may come back to to be remembered and, and useful information for you. Yeah, specifically for that particular team. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just looking at that's like, you know, what I showed you is just the aggregations of players, um, you know, like the literally the starting five for those teams. This is just showing you like an individual player. So this is a box plus minus of um, of Jared Butler from Baylor uh, versus the uh, 2021 NBA one and done class. So in this case, again, and this is pretty typical, you'll see for like sweet spot type players. I mean, I think Butler was like rated about in the 80s, you know. Yeah, I think it's like literally 88 um, in his class. He's um, this is comparing his uh, first year output to um, some one and done type players: Kate Cunningham, Moses Moody, Scotty Barnes, Jalen Suggs. He starts out um, basically at the the lower echelon of this uh, collective group. He's at like I think 3.8 as a freshman. You see, um, Suggs and uh, Cunningham are all above eight, so they're way above even like the normal uh, one and done average. However, when you get to year two, Butler is already up past basically all of the players, and he's base all of the one and dones except he's basically tied with Jalen Suggs. So he's already essentially eclipsed ninety uh, plus percent of the one and dones just by going to his sophomore year. And by the time he gets to his senior year, he or sorry junior year, he is uh, well above. He's like just a little bit below twelve on his BPM, and so he's uh, at least like. Um, He's at least four, uh, four above, you know, even some of the higher averages on um, like Cade Cunningham and some of those other guys. So this just, again, just shows you at an individual level um, how this dynamic tends to work out in terms of the uh, performance curve of the sweet spots, upper sort of that second tier, though um, ready for the NBA, but not ready for the NBA as um, freshmen group of players versus the players that actually do leave for the NBA as freshmen. And I mean, there's a huge difference between a six, two shooting guard in college and a six, six shooting guard shooting the same percentages in college. Um, There's, there's a lot of that where the league is definitely more elite and you can be a very good, excellent all American college basketball player and maybe not play at all in the NBA or at least play meaningfully in the NBA. So there's there's a lot you know there's a lot of variance in 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 this whole in this whole process. But um you know I think it boils down to you know what, what we always go back to is the question of well what's the only thing that matters? And the question is is it working? Um yeah. and so many times we look at well good, bad or ugly Oftentimes, they can be basically the same thing, meaning that there are some bad things that are done that become good things. Um, there are, you know, player attributes we may not like that as freshmen, that by the time they're seniors, man, you really like that kid for your team and because all of your opponents can't stand him. Um there is that thing where you know you, where we start looking at the fact that we spend a lot of time on kind of the what's happening as well as how it's impacting a program but and 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 is that program winning or losing and then ultimately it goes back to you know we as indiana fans are fairly sensitive to this the idea that well you can fix all of your problems by 
talent acquisition. And I think what Mike shows in this in so many great ways for me, it's been, yeah, but there's a lag to that. And you may be seeing this with certain programs right now where when you're in a, one of the reasons why you see coaching regressions, because that first group went through and now they're reloading with a whole new group and they've gone from a team that's performing at nine on BPM aggregately. Now they're down to a three and they may miss the tournament. Um, and they may have a, aspired to hit a three because they may not be there when they first started the season. So, you know, there, there's a, there, 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 there is a, a developmental process to all this that we kind of look at. And ultimately it's as time marches on, is it working? Is the question we have to ask ourselves and why, again, you look at a, at a, at, at, at college, you know, you, you, you look at the impatience, why it's so stark that if you're in a year three, a year four, a year five, why, fan bases, athletic directors, the media start asking some very pointed and difficult questions if things are appearing to be a certain way. Yeah, exactly. No, and that's, it, it is, hard. And I think there's those like exchanges of like teams, like, you know, the outflow of like really good players and the inflow of new ones. That's why there, there is some advantage obviously to having like those kind of sweet spot sort of kids where you have the talent, but they stay. And that's the key. That's why, you know, the like, the folks like Jay Wright and um, and uh, Tony Bennett and some of the others that have kind of really adopted this strategy have uh, really benefited and profited from uh, from taking that versus uh, the older strategy that we saw um, Kalapari take uh, back in the 2000 teens. So um, so yeah, when we come back, we'll we'll take a look at some of these uh, rosters. We'll take a look at three rosters that to fit a reasonably. Um, a reasonably accurate definition of uh, a model roster. And uh, we'll see how they may be a bit different than what uh, we're used to seeing in college basketball. Coming back on Texas and Joe's. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. So, welcome back. Uh, model rosters. And uh, we, 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 we picked six teams uh, that we were, that, that, and three of them are going to be the model, and three are going to be what we call the misfits. Um, and we kind of looked at... Eh, 
when we when I first when, when Mike and I first talked about this this episode, um, we we talked you know Mike again IU and Philly the guy knows Villanova pretty well, but the the question we came to was you know could you know UConn are they kind of the heir apparent in so many ways to Villanova, you know could they be the last to do it this way? And I think the answer is no because I think someone else will find ways to kind of do it the way that they're doing it, but. In just a few years, um, Dan Hurley has figured out some things at UConn, uh, and you're looking at a team that's you know defending national champions. They're 15 and two and five and one in the conference right now. They're in the top 10 AP, Ken Palm, Torvik, Net. They're third in the country in offensive production, unadjusted. And even though they're 80th in defensive rank, they played some really tough opponents, and especially in a high-scoring Big East, and they're still holding their opponents to under 100 points and 100 possessions. They've been done without their big man, Donovan Klingon, for a few games. Um, they're And and they're really not the same team they were last year. They they lost some pretty, some pretty key pieces, but they shoot the ball extremely well. And you look at, you know, and so again, if you look at this, you know, these team sheets on the, you know, the audio guys, take a look at these real quick. Just as a word, uh, I did some of these over the weekend. Uh, I got the records right, but you know, if you're looking at this a week or two later, some of this might be they'll be in the ballpark we think or or not. But you know, <laughs> it's it because these are very fluid statistics. But you start looking at Tristan Newton and Cam Spencer, who are both experienced transfer portal guards. Um, Alex Carabon, you know, they're, they're basically their top three players, their top three options other than Donovan Klingon, who's their seven two post. Those are three guys that they the, the two of them they got for the transfer portal. They recruited Carabon, who is just actually a little outside the sweet spot, right, Mike? Yeah, he's um yeah, I mean in terms of like I guess the traditional range, he's um he's around like a hundred, I think. So he's kind of like right on the event horizon, I guess, of uh what is typically the sweet spot area, but, uh, but yeah, but when it, I remember when Indiana was recruiting him, he, there was a time, you know, not to make IU fans even more um, happy with us. Uh, there was a time where I remember Alex Caravan was actually probably leaning towards IU more than any other school. Um, and I remember like actually watching some of his games when he was playing up at the, the NEPSAC, which is the, uh, the really competitive um, private school conference up in the Northeast. So um, I was very much a Caravan fan, and uh, I really hope that uh, I would uh, luck out in getting him. But uh, like so many other Archie Miller recruitments, it uh, kind of fizzled out a bit. And and again, when you look at you know the size of this roster, you know Caravan's at six eight, but he's definitely a perimeter player more than he is an interior player. Um, you look at the you, you look at the, the basically you have a bunch of guys six two through six eight. Um, you have several players that are in the sweet spot, but you also have Stefan Castle who's sitting as he came in ranked tenth, and he's only getting twenty three. He's getting twenty four minutes a game um, over the course of the season. So it can be where you don't have to keep that that superstar stud recruit on the floor thirty forty minutes a game that if you have a culture that's built around this, that, that's, that, that values player development, which Dan Hurley does, um, yeah. you, you end up with, uh, you know, you, you can justify that. And a lot of what Hurley, where he impresses me, um, defensively, you know, they're good at stopping opponents and they're good at protecting yeah. the glass. 
they're mm-hmm. good at um at cleaning it you know they're not you know but you know they're not it's going to be defined as say a houston defensively but yeah offensively i kind of i and i love how he how his teams flow in and out of different actions in their sets yeah. i compared him with mike earlier to you know um, golden state that the ball moves, it moves, moves from side yeah. to side, it attacks, yeah. they can, you know, they have multiple scoring options, both on the perimeter and inside. They can attack you driving it, they can attack you passing it into Klingon off, off of off of rolls. They're not sticking him with his back to the basket and pumping it down there. They're using him off ball screen action, handoff action, and really just kind of getting, you know, a guy like Cam Spencer. And the great thing is because the way they run this, the reads they make, all five guys on the court can end up with the basketball at any given time. All five are in a place where they're it's designed so that they can get the shot that that they need off of it. Yeah. And it makes it very hard for a defense to focus on one area and take that away. So you yeah. actually have to have a team. And again, if they're playing at their or close to their level, but it also that type of talent insulates you that if you are having a bad shooting night, you defend well enough to keep your to keep your opponent away, um, you, where you're not running into fourteen point runs, you know, yeah. eight minutes, shots six minutes throughout the game, yeah. six minute scoring droughts. Yeah. You know, you're able to you know you can get Tristan Newton go into the basket and dumping it off to Klingon for that for that for that dunk. You have yeah. those. You 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 have that that ability. And you have a system that's really well tailored and kids that run it extremely well. So yeah. when you yeah, look at a team go ahead, Mike. I yeah, yeah but no, I'm just impressed with how they've done things in a, a short period of absolutely. time. Absolutely. And yeah, and when and when you talk about culture and, and you know obviously just geographically, because where I live, I mean I used to work just within like a three minute walk from the Villanova pavilion. Um Yukon is probably in my mind the the closest thing you have to a modern team that's using that Jay Wright model. I mean, they're they're chasing mostly sweet spot kids the way uh, the Wright used to. You know, a lot of like high school kids ranked around thirty to eighty, and supplementing with maybe you know one or two like uh, key transfers. I think right now they have. I looked on their roster the other day. They had seven kids ranked the top eighty with two key transfers. Um, there are two recruits lined up for the uh, twenty four class are both kids ranked you know between thirty and eighty. So you could actually take this UConn uh, roster, superimpose um, it over top of just about any other Villanova roster uh, from the past and in, in the uh, Jay Wright tenure, and you would hardly find or notice a speck of difference between the two. They basically make all their hay on those ranked, you know, but sub-elite recruits that stay past their freshman year and hit the right balance of talent experience, you know, that typically wins in March. And even just, you know, the, the, the statistical overlap, you know, not just talking about recruit rankings, but like, you know, what they actually do on the court, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, they, I, I, I always say that they just like kill you with efficiency. They, especially with like field goal percentage, um, the Husky squad is number two in the country in two point field goal efficiency. The 2018 Nova squad that last won the national championship, they were number two in uh, two point uh, field goal efficiency. Um, assist. They're both very, um, both programs were very good in terms of, you know, their system, you know, leading to a lot of shots coming off of, you know, good action and, and uh, 
and good passes that led right directly to scoring opportunities. So I think you're right. I mean, what we say is that, you know, you're, they have a system, they have enough talent that stays, um, that is disciplined, and they basically can just keep hitting the reset button year over year in terms of, you know, just like plugging guys in that know how to do this and, uh, and perform it at a level that gets them pretty deep into March. And, and the other thing is you look at how they're using the portal, and that to me is what's fascinating as well, that, you know, when you start looking at how players are playing against higher level, you know, sometimes even against lower level com- uh, competition. I mean, Tristan Newton, nobody, you know, was not, was not a highly sought after recruit coming out of high school. No. Over time, his body developed, his game developed, and you know, oftentimes, if you guys spend the 20 bucks on the Ken Palm every year, you can take a look at a kid and say, okay, well, how they do against A and B competition, tier A and tier B competition. If you have a kid that's shooting 40% from three in in a, in a mid-major or a low-major conference, and then you look at the four games they had as buy games, and they were shooting 20% with a 35% turnover rate, that may not be a kid that translates well to division to to the to the high major programs, you know, that are mm-hmm. that are looking to contend. But if you see a kid whose numbers are close or better, now you're talking about a kid that may be very attractive in the transfer portal. It's one reason why a kid like I think Delta Connect was so was so popular was that yeah you could just and then and then you throw the game footage in and you're like okay we see what we see we see the setup we see what he's able to do yeah. and that's gonna that's a that kid's a player and he just okay, flew under the radar screen or the light bulb clicked off or he figured some things out. Or sometimes they're 19, 20 years old, they grow. You know, it's not yeah. like, it's not like they, not like they stay that, you know, their, their, their heights change. So exactly, definitely wait. So UConn, again, um, just that, you know, we look at the model roster. The next one we picked, and this is one that when you think about programs that, have kind of not adopted the sweet spot. And this mm-hmm. isn't really even a sweet spot hit, but they've done some things a little differently this time that yeah. John Calipari hasn't done in quite a long time. And Kentucky sitting at 12 and three, two and one in the SEC. Yeah, they're, 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 they're as always popular with the media and the AP. There came Ken Palm through net is kind of that you know, has them top twenty, but they have a seventh ranked offensive you know offensive efficiency, defense, and again because of the age of the team can make some sense here. But you know you you, you look at in the past Kentucky has always been kind of one of those teams that didn't really feel like they had to shoot the ball particularly well because they had enough coverage on rebounds that they could rebound a third plus of their own misses, and they had the big of the week, the big of the year down there to, to, to finish off and to, and to score and, and mop up on second chance points. They yeah, would have guards. Yeah, having, having Towns and Davis helps. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. And, and you can't teach them to be big and you can't teach them to be towns and towns. You can't teach that. You can't teach. You just can't teach those, you know, that, that, the, the, that, that type of thing. Um, or even a Trey Lyles, when you really think about it, you know, where sure. it's like, a, you know, you're going to be outmat, you know, they, they physically outmatch you at every spot. Duke, Duke has some similar things too. Exactly. But this is the yeah. best and highest volume three point shooting team of the Calipari era. And for yeah. a guy that still runs a lot of dribble drive action, a guy that still does a lot on pick and, you know, pick and roll. We have a kid like Rob Dillingham as a lead guard, Reed Shepard as a lead guard and note his, you know, Reed Shepard's BPM is sitting at 14.2. 
as a freshman, the 43rd ranked kid guard. in the country that's as a guard. guard, which is ridiculous. I mean, I just give people a sense like usually like the BP, the high BPMs that are like really crazy will oftentimes be like, uh, like Zion Williamson. He was like, up, I think it was like 1920 or something. Trace um, Jackson Davis was 16 last year, you know, with his yeah. utilization rate. I mean, Zach, exactly. close. I mean, that's yeah. So first, yeah, so exactly. So this is, and, and so you do have, and again, you still have Aaron Bradshaw there um, who dealt with some injuries. You still have those one and dones there, but with Trey Mitchell and Antonio Reeves coming back as transfers running the, you know, that are putting up, I mean, you, you're, you're kind of putting up one and done numbers. Yeah. You, you have a much different looking Kentucky team. Not only that, but, not only are they the, the best and highest volume three point shooting team in the Calipari at UK, they're the fastest playing team uh, yeah. that Calipari's had at UK. Yeah. And they're not turning it over, even, you know, they're not turning it over. So, yeah, they're not, they're, their rate of offensive rebound is not what it, you know, what it has to, was had, because it hasn't had to be in the past. Yeah. But you look at how Calipari has f- kind of looked at, you know, looking at his roster construction and going, maybe I need to move away from a bunch of guys who are jumping out of the gym. But now mm-hmm. I have some guys who can actually create their own shots, get makes again, break down defenses and really put defenses into scramble modes. It's, it's creating a better offensive flow for him with yeah. players that are, I would say, you know, this is more like your father, or your, really your grandfather's Kentucky team. You know, exactly. it's you know yeah. you're, you're seeing you know Jack Givens and a uh, Kyle Macy coming out here. You yeah. see more Rex Chapman. Yeah, you see a lot more Rex Chapman than you actually do. You know, Merlin's uh, Noel. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. and, or the Har- yeah. or the Harrison brothers. Yeah. And yeah, the um, yeah, the the um, just thinking back on this um, from my perspective. It's interesting because um, the sweet spot actually came about, you know, I started doing that research because of Kentucky. It was just doing these sort of side-by-side comparisons of, you know, Kentucky versus Villanova, Kentucky versus, you know, Virginia and all these other teams. And I, you know, I started seeing this variance and I was like, well, man, look at all these one and done kids that are just, you know, Kentucky just hoovers up all of these top 10 players every year or better part of a decade, but they weren't winning much of anything, especially in March. So, you know, I think this, what, and what you said is right. I mean, the difference is compared to the past. And I think this is a better approach is the addition of some of those older, more mature scores like, you know, Reeves and Mitchell, I think it really is making a huge difference, you know, for Kentucky. I mean, there are teams in the past, would like you said they would get exposed totally by some of those more experienced you know teams you know in march now cal you know we're talking about the trade-off most you know 90 plus percent of you know college basketball programs on that whole curve that we're showing you they're on the curve where they don't have the talent and just desperately would like to have more they have more than enough experience and it's like okay we want to move up on the curve where we can actually get you know some more of those high-end players on the higher level of the uh, the uh, box bonus Cal is actually the one guy is actually going the other direction. He's saying like, look, I'm already maxed out in terms of these, um, in terms of like recruit rankings of, you know, getting the elite players one and dones, but they're leaving too fast. And I'm just getting killed in March for having to swap out, you know, freshman 
for new freshmen. Let me take in a few guys that actually have some experience that are high, pretty high skilled transfer guys. Reeves is a really good shooter. Mitchell's kind of been all over the place. He's bounced around, but he's, you know, a very skilled guy. Again, he's effective. Uh, an IU recruit at one time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, exactly. But right now, like, you know, Kentucky, they just have four top 30 uh, players on their roster. Whereas, you know, like 2018, they had, I think, eight top 30 players with seven of their top eight scores uh, were freshmen. And that's a team that got bounced by K-State in Sweet 16. So again, you know, it's there, there just was no more room that Cal could go in terms of just adding more and more talent and trying to just, um, you know, just overwhelm teams like he could with the 2011 team because, um, well, there's just only so many Anthony Davises that come along in college basketball. So, And it's hard to get those guys to play together in a short, you know, okay, here's a summer. With limited workouts, here's your practice, you know, time. You you, you talked to about a John Calipari who has an international experience. He's coached the Dominican Republic team and done some work with USA Basketball, particularly his year, years working with the Dominicans, which kind of taught him how to how do I get a group of guys to play together for a short period and and compete on the international stage. There's there's an art to that, and it's one and you know some people may look at this like what's he saying, but it's what makes him one of the best coaches in the game today because he's been able to over the years mold together kids who really don't know how, you know, who don't know how to play the game on the collegiate level, get them playing the way that he wants them to play and getting them performing throughout a season where they're at least competitive in one of the most difficult basketball conferences, you know, top three in difficulty, as well as being a perpetual national contender even though it doesn't always work out the way that they want it to in Lexington. Yeah. Um, we asked you guys to remember number nine. Well, we're going to go on to Michigan state because that, 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 that nine BPM and looking right now at what should be based on Izzo's Tom Izzo's past performances that year three, year four, where his teams now go from building to contending. Um, and there's a lot that looks very similar and a lot that looks very different about this team. They are currently 10 and seven across, you know, across the board, you know, they are two and four in the big 10. They're out of the top 25 last time. I think they got seven votes because of their strength of schedule and the way they've played. They haven't really dropped, you know, you're looking at a 10 and 7 team that's in close in that in the top 20 in, in, in the in the metrics of or the, 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 the analytic sites of Ken Palm and Torvik, and they're 26 in the net. Um, but unadjusted efficiency, you know, the yeah, they're scoring 112 points per hundred point six points per hundred possessions. Defensively, they're at 96.4, very similar, I think, I think to UConn, but you're looking at a program, though, that their experience are 28th in Ken Palm with um, with 65 with almost two thirds of their minutes continuity, which means guys are in the same spots they were a year ago. They're the fifth rank. They had the fifth highest ranked composite class in 2023. Mm. Granted, they've lost Jeremy Fears to a, to a tragic incident mm. um, and maybe back at some point. But this is a team that's one and five in non-Breslin Center games. And looking at their at you know, they definitely are have are a, and and they're just 
They've been struggling all year to the point where Tom Izzo, there's some things clearly not working. And he's even saying this to the media and he's saying it in public where he's just like, I'm not sure how to get through to these guys. I'm not sure how to get them to do the things I've needed my teams to do since I've been here since the mid nineties. Um, this is a team that's very dependent on Tyson Walker, a six, one transfer lead guard. Yeah. Overly um, dependent. <laughs> and I mean, Izzo's always been good at finding diamonds in the rough. Like he is, he, he will find, you know, he'll find a kid like a Tyson Walker with a portal. It makes it a little easier for him because he can, you know, kind of see how they play. But he's been the guy that has actually promoted walk-ons, preferred walk-ons and had to be starters. And yeah, they were exactly. productive starters. Yeah. Um, and, and again, runs good stuff, still very modern, still, I mean, it's not, you know, very, very, you know, still very effective sets very effective offensive and defensive philosophy. Yeah. Um, but you look at, you know, Jaden Akins as a wing guard at a 5.6 BPM. You look at AJ Hoggard, who and again, Akins was 54 ranked. Hoggard was 81 ranked. Malik Hall, 61. These are quintessential sweet spot guys, Mike. And yeah. we're looking at that five to seven range or that five and a half to six and a half range in BPM. Yeah. Where in the past, and we look at the final four teams, he's running at that at that nine level. Yeah. And there it, it's interesting because one thing Tom Izzo has always valued is is rebounding. And in yeah. particular, holding his his opponents to one shot. Yeah. And this team, even though it doesn't always show up in the analytics, you'll notice and you know, Tom's Tom even said it point blank. Well, what do the analytics tell you? Yeah, but I was does, just about to apologize for both of us for using analytics. Uh, yeah, but about Michigan the State, ana- the analytics actually tell you what Tom was telling you, which is Matty Cisco is pulling down thirty percent of the defensive rebounds. Carson Cooper is pulling down twenty. You know when he's and the, and they don't really play a lot together. What you're seeing though is you're seeing the two of them. The rest of the team is under fifteen percent, and in the past. Yeah. You saw that rebounding by committee was a thing that Michigan State did extremely well. Yeah. All five this guys l- took responsibility yeah. for cleaning the boards. Precisely. And you, and you have a team now that, again, they're running decent stuff. They're shooting the ball a heck of a lot better. But just that coming together portion yeah. and doing the little things that Tom that, that have made Tom Izzo teams great, they're just yeah. not doing it. Exactly. And it's not happening, yeah. and it's showing up in the record. Yep. Yeah, that if if you want to sort of like draw a, a direct comparison, I and it's good that you point out the rebounding. That's the thing that sticks out to me the most is just you know like comparing today to the past, the two thousand championship odd. I remember they had a plus twelve rebounding margin, offensive and defensive. Um, the last Final Four squad, the one that you know we just uh, flashed up earlier on the screen. They had a plus nine uh, rebounding margin um, per game advantage. Today, they're all the way down at uh, just a plus three. And I think on offensive rebounding, they're right at the national average. It's like 0.2 above the national average on uh, offensive rebounding margin. So they just don't quite have like the same kind of you know um, capacity at uh, pulling down rebounds and like, li- like you said, limiting second opportunities. And you add on top of that, what you said, you know, with Walker, like Walker's numbers match up 
just fine, let's say, with uh, like Cassius Winston, who is sort of like the lead guard on um, their 2019 Final Four. He's fine as far as the number one. The problem is, is that Hall, Hogard, Akins, those guys, like I said, they're between five and seven BPM. The 2019, uh, you know, the 2019 Final Four team, the second and third guys were more around like nine to 12. That's um, like Xavier Tillman was 11 or 12. Kenny Goins was you know, around 10. So basically the current Michigan State's, you know, two, three, and four option guys are actually statistically better aligned to like the five, six, seven guys from the 2019 squad. And that's really where the gap is. They just don't have the firepower like they used to of, you know, the Drake Greens, Gary Harris's, and Mateen Cleves of the world. They just don't have them in numbers. But the, at the same time, it's also, it's not, you know, those players, it, is, is it a system thing? Is it a development thing? Mm-hmm. At what point do you look at a Hall of Fame coach who, you know, at this point, and, and is clearly pulling out what, you know, his hair and trying to figure out what's actually happening inside of his program and doing streams of consciousness with the media and visibly frustrated that whatever motivation used to work isn't working anymore, which comes into you know what a lot of times coaches talk about. It's not always just, boy, let me show you what I'm running. Um, no, I can watch your video. I know what you're running. It's how do you get through to an ever-evolving group of kids who are at sometimes, you know, basketball, they've been good at it and they enjoy playing it. But mm-hmm. there may that may not be their you know they and they may see it as being a way to make some money when they get out of college, yeah. But they're not you know they're not they're not as hungry as maybe other players that you've coached in the past and how and 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 you've recruited them because you think you can unlock something. You've mm-hmm. recruited them. You've brought them to your campus because you think you can bring them together to play. But now it's like how do you kind of get through to them? And how do you move them in such a way? And I think as we go through the next three, we're going to kind of get a better idea of programs that one program that's having a similar problem. You know, yeah, exactly. It's a little different because they're younger uh, aggregately, but mm-hmm. you know, you've, you've got some programs that, you know, how, how does that sort, you know, how are, how is what you, how is your practice of coaching? How is that? What are and what are you doing differently? And it may not just be what's on the whiteboard. Oftentimes it isn't. How are you approaching situations and working through situations and getting the buy-in you need to be successful? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, from my, my perspective, you know, I'm always looking at the numbers, and I think all those intangible things that you talk about show up in the numbers. I mean, they're related, but uh, you know, the numbers are almost just maybe like as a existing as a secondhand measure of those, uh, those problems that are confronted on the team that uh, really can't be measured at that time. Your, your, your system is five guys on the floor rebound and you have one guy doing it. And yeah. that's a problem. And exactly. it's a big one. It's a big one. Yep. Yeah. So for that, for that segment, um, we will move on to the next one. So after the break, we'll, uh, we'll take a look at some of the, uh, the Island of Misfit Toys, and um, and probably see some familiar names and faces in uh, this uh, coming segment. So stay tuned on X's and Joe's. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? 
Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past. And the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. All right, welcome back to Excellence and Joe's. I'm Mike Weemuth with my co-host, Bob Motes. Now we're going to talk about misfit rosters. What are they trying to do, and how are they doing it? So, Bob, this is the fun part because we can actually jump into uh, some familiar faces. Be- before we jump into the familiar faces and names, can you give me kind of an idea of what the Misfit Toys in your world, you know, what, what when, when you when you think of the island of Misfit Toys, what are you seeing? Oh, oh, you're thinking. Yeah, the, um, yeah, the, I, I, I love um, Roth Redness Reindeer. And that was still... I don't know. One of my favorite, um, like childhood, must see Christmas viewing. Um, you know, during the holidays. But um, yeah, I always found it weird that in the Rudolph universe that there was a, I don't know. I guess you might say like a, a functioning Soviet-style gulag archipelago for undesired toys. I mean, I, we we talked about this, but yeah, I mean, it's just like, I mean, to this day, I still can't get over that. I mean, if you think about it, like the the land of misfit toys checks off all the same boxes as the Solovetsky Gulag. You know, it's it's a barren, frozen island where you're sent against your will. You you can't get out, and they only let you out when they need you again. So. Um, yeah, I, I still wonder, do, do you think that the show writers, when they were filming that cartoon, were possibly reading Solzhenitsyn during filming? Uh, you, you never really know what someone's doing at any given time, but, y- you know, it it was set close to Siberia. I'll give it that much. Yeah, it's, you know, I will give yeah, it that much. Yeah, it's... I was wondering, you know, maybe that's where they send Herbie if he doesn't make his productivity quota at the workshop. Time to go to, time to, go to Siberia. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you to the salt like, mines. Yeah, like um, the, the Santa's NKVD knocks on those doors like, uh, so you would have been right. dentist and not a, a glorious labor for the proletariat. 
Anyway, yeah, that, that's anyway. a nice uh, little side one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, so while, while while Mike was talking about uh, the you know was 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 talking about the the, the Siberian links to uh, Rudolph, uh, I realized I made a mistake, a typo. Um, Purdue was actually five and two in conference. And no, I was not wishful thinking. I think I was in my anger last night typing out the fact that, you know, I may have gotten Purdue and IU confused. So Purdue is five and two in the Big Ten, pretty much tied for, well, they're, they're right, right around, well, Wisconsin is five and one, Purdue's five and two. Um, so they are pretty much, you know, at the top of the Big Ten, 16 and two overall. AP number one. In the metrics, they're two and three. They're one of the. They are statistically one the you know one of the best teams in the country and have been for the last two years. Um, offensively, top ten offense, hundred eighteen point seven points per one hundred possessions. Defensively, ninety seven point one. So they're they're they they are holding their opponents to pretty much less than one point per possession, as we saw last night. Mm-hmm. One, but there are some interesting things that even though their minutes continuity is top ten in Division One, so a lot of the same faces you saw last year in Boilermaker uniforms are the same faces you see this year on the floor. There are some notable exceptions to that. They are, um, actually for letting the other team's offenses play a little faster, uh, mm-hmm. by about an entire second, um. You know, at sixteen point six, it's second second fastest than any other a a full second faster than any other Purdue team. Yeah. So they're not exactly you know. Again, sometimes teams really want to slow you down and force you to do certain things. This Purdue team is they'll let you because I think they know they can outscore you, and that's kind of the mindset that they're having to it. And if they force you to take a quick shot, they may give up a few possessions, but they're also going to. Um, they're also going to find ways to get out and get out and transition a little bit and score some yeah. points that way. Yeah. Um, they get fouled a lot, and Zach Eady in particular gets fouled a lot. Um, yeah. His, you know, and for I every, think he gets fouled a lot. Yeah, for yeah, and we know that. Uh, for yeah. every 100 field goals he takes, he shoots 85 free throws. Sixth best in Division One, That's and crazy. no one's getting hit as much as he is. <laughs> Because yeah. basically, no, you know, because teams are also sometimes throwing two or three bodies at him. Yeah. And as you saw, like with Gabe Cups, you have to, you know, physically having to wrap him or trying to find ways of keeping him off the boards. It's hard to do. And mm-hmm. um, as a result, you have a, you know, a kid, National Player of the Year numbers at 15.6 BPM. The improvement that Braden Smith has gone over, you know, he's even had been playing a little more per game. Um, at almost you know 9.6, you know his his contributions have been there. I think the big one for them is the element they were missing last year that they had the year before that, and periodically Painter has had this is that driving guard and mm-hmm. Lance Jones, who they brought in as a transfer, uh, and you know, and we knew is a pretty good player. He he has a very good jump shot. But he's also a very he's very good at just breaking you know straight line driving and forces defenses to yeah. play that in addition to playing him as a shooter. Yeah. So it's really hard to double team Edie because he is surrounded by shooters. Unlike years where I think they've been a lot where, where their sets were really dependent, like when they had um, 
Klein and Carson Edwards, and you were seeing Jordan Sperber doing great work about talking about particularly how that what they were doing out of Zoom action with mm. Travion, you know, going to Trave, you know, going through a Travion Williams or a, or a Isaac Haas. What mm. you're seeing now is you're seeing a Purdue team that they can get the ball into Edie. They can also drive it with a Brandon Smith or Lance Jones. Smith is very efficient. Tony Adranja did a wonderful job showing that. If you have a chance to watch his film room on Purdue, great stuff. It's great stuff where he's able to make level one, level two, level three reads. Um, but you're seeing a team that's really kind of come together and they've done it with Caleb first playing significantly fewer minutes. They've done mm-hmm. it by putting Ethan Morton more on the bench. They're playing Cam Heidi, a 135 wing forward instead of Miles Colvin, who was what a top. Was he top 50? Yeah, he was. Yeah, depending on service, he's a, he's yeah. a top 80 player. Yeah. You know, they brought Trey Kaufman Wren and kind of put him in his natural, more interior type position where he can strip out and maybe shoot threes. Mm-hmm. Um, Mason Gillis is still doing Mason Gillis things. And it feels like that kid's been there since Brian Cardinal was there. Yeah. But um, what you're seeing with Purdue is you're seeing a team that's continuously and where Painter. He knows what he has. He puts the guys in the right spots. Yeah. Um, will they be successful in March? I, I don't know. They're shooting the ball uh, from three better than they've shot. They've shot the last, I think, couple of years. Yeah, they're which much better now. Makes them a, lo- a lot more dangerous. Yeah. Um, but they're also not a team where you've got really a whole lot of creation on this roster. When you mm. looked at the other three, you had a lot of, you know, you have multiple guys who can create their own shot or when a play's going bad and as, and as teams start figuring out, like when you're running into teams in November and December, they're not always on the same page on how, whatever it's supposed to do in certain ball screen coverages yeah. or handoff coverages. They're not sure how they're, are they going to switch possessions? Are they going to stay? Are they going to help and recover? How does that help and recover? Look, what angles are they taking by March? Those teams that are sitting in the NCAA tournament, they figured that out. And a team like Purdue, who is more reliant on, even though they may not be a set reliant, but they're reliant on read and react ball moving to the right locations or on those sets actually providing what they need to provide. And they may not be able to turn the corner as effectively. Mm. And they may also see that maybe Zach Eady on that screen is holding, <laughs> you know, maybe yeah. he's holding a player. Yeah, um, it's like the Mar- whistle March gets, is the almost whistle like gets a, a little tighter. It gets a little tighter. Yeah, no, March is, a, I would say March is almost like a different sport compared to the rest of the regular season in college basketball, particularly for like the big 10 versus uh, the NCAA tournament. And yeah, I think absolutely. If you're a Purdue fan, I, the, the number one thing that you would probably be happy about is a um, Braden Smith is really becoming more like a regular, like lead quarterback style um, lead guard that you can see after you know, going a little bit deeper in, in March last year, they were just so dependent upon Edie, just, you know, sucking in, you know, def- defensive attention and just like, you know, kicking out rather than now Smith is really doing just so much better with like stuff off of, um, you know, ball screen action with Edie rolling, you know, parallel with him and then just playing essentially like a triple option quarterback, you know, is the big going to come after me? Do I lob it to Edie if he commits or do I kick it out? If the tag man, you know, gets out of position, like, like I said, Tony, Tony really, uh, drawn you ran some really good, uh, film yep. room on that. Bra- so, Braden Smith, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I, I thought I, I'm going to, 
my thought on Braden is this: when I when I see this kid play, I see a guy. Remember Greg Maddox when he was pitching? Yes. It, it was it was a sight to behold because he was the ultimate pinpoint control pitcher, and he and he knew how to call. He could pitch almost a perfect game. He was brilliant, mm-hmm. and he didn't have a blow by fastball. You know, we're not talking. You know, we're we're. We're we're not talking Nolan Ryan at 102 mile an hour here, but Smith has enough wiggle, which means shifting. You know that 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 ability to kind of quickly change directions on a move, where he can just be evasive to a defender. But he has enough shiftiness where he knows when to use his bursts of speed and mm-hmm. when not to. That he's able to to get in those areas. So I know that Smith mm-hmm. is one of those players. It's 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 kind of interesting to watch. And I, I mean, we we can kind of see that he's moved, um, that he's that he's moved and elevated his game. Uh, there's still oh. definite weaknesses on this team. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they get exploited. So it'd be interesting to see if their February is the same as it was last year. Yeah. But, yeah. But. Exactly. No, they're. I, I think the last thing I'll say about Purdue, I think they. Um, everyone makes a kind of a comparison to the uh, the UVA team from 2019 as a kind of you know um, parallel of a systems based team that really does look like they have sort of the numbers and metrics and uh, firepower to actually win a national championship. I think that's definitely true. Um, I, I would say that the one. Thing that I'm still wondering about Purdue because I think a lot of I think they really do check a lot of the boxes. I do wonder about the fact that you know compared to let's say that UVA team, that team had six NBA guys on it. I mean they were a system team, but they were a system team with a lot of individual talent. And uh, teams that have like one guy that has like a huge BPM variance between himself and everyone else. Um, those teams don't always fare typically as well as ones that are a little bit more like evenly distributed in terms of performance. So, um, yeah, that's the one thing I would say that, you know, is uh, gives me a little bit of pause about Purdue in terms of, uh, you know, how they they match up with a lot of recent uh, national championship teams. And if they get really in a track meet, can they can they stand? Because watching the last the first 10 minutes of the second half last night against Indiana, Indiana almost got themselves back into that basketball game in, a, yeah. in relatively short order. Exactly. So as we look at the next one, it's, you know, Houston. When you talk about great offensive teams, then we look at great a great defensive team. And um, Houston's big question with Kelvin Sampson is um, really what's it going to look like going into the Big 12? They're 14-2 and two overall, but both of their losses have been in conference. Uh, the metrics love them because their defense is so good, and they do a pretty good, good job of shooting the ball. Um, their offensive rating isn't bad. Um, defensively, they're really good. But what's interesting about Houston is, unlike a lot of teams who are really good defensively, they're they're more willing to give up an assist because what they're going to do is they're going to lock down on their man. You know, they don't really switch. They fight through every screen. They help and recover quick. And they're there when the pass hits, they're there. And they may give up an assist here or there. They may give up on a cut. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're not going to give you those easy drives. They're not going to overhelp to that point. And... They also play at a tempo where they they're very selective in when they run, and they're also very and they also slow their opponents down. But to me, the interesting thing about Houston is as effective they are at deflections and blocks and like, they're an inch smaller than the D one average. Yeah. This is uh, not exactly you know you you don't have a seven foot one rim protector sitting in the middle of the lane swatting balls out. Yeah, and 
as I, as you if, again, if you see this, whether it's here or if you see it on the, um, you know, see see you know see it on the website uh, or the the show notes, you're you know, Kelvin Sampson's never really been big on. I need to go get sweet spot guys. I need to get guys who are going to fit in my defensive system, play hard for me, and that I can get through to. And he has had some better talent over the years. Don't get me wrong, and talent has gone on to the league, but it's it's very much that you know he's not he's not again he's 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 maybe been looking a little lower um, in his talent, and he's still getting incredible results with three guys that are well over ten on the BPM. Exactly. Yeah, I would when I always talk about Kevin Sampson and specifically like his time in Houston. It's hard just because I'm a metrics guy and I'm always looking at numbers. And with him, it's you almost have to look at not the numbers, but sort of the descriptions of his players to get like a better sense of exactly like, you know, what he's trying to do and what he's shooting for. So his recruiting bios for his players, they tend to have a lot less mentions of things like skill. You know, hear a lot about, you know, his players shooting or their ball handling and things like that. It's far more about variables like physique and, you know, ability to play like high contact style of, of basketball. Like I, before the, the show I actually printed up the, um, some of the descriptions of his players um, when they're coming out of high school or, you know, coming out of the portal. And you'll notice that almost every one of the players has some mention about their physique or something about their like physicality. And you obviously see that, you know, in his style of play. I mean, just reading through here, you know, just going down the list, a physical specimen with a cut-up frame and broad shoulders, rock-solid frame, um, impressing with his physical play and athleticism, powerful con- contact player. Uh, stocky frame allows him to lower use his lower center of gravity to his advantage. He often bullies ball handlers. Big bodied physically, he's long, strong, and holds position well. So, you see, just like going down the list, all of these players can't really be described accurately by the number that they get. You know, Kelvin is one of those guys, those coaches that's just a little bit different in terms of like the analytics because he really is going after a type. And it's not just at one position, he's going at basically every single position, he's kind of looking for that player he might throw in like one guy on the team that can maybe do a little bit more you know shot creation or um or you know off or offensively gifted and maybe with a little bit of trade-off in terms of physicality but as a core team he is basically trying to rebuild the uh you know the 1985 chicago bears defense for for the hardwood he's really and you see like with the the numbers that they're producing this year on the defensive end they are possibly going to be breaking some records in terms of uh, their, their metrics. And I mean, they're not running anything complex offensively, but there's definitely a philosophy to share the ball and play, mm. you know, play as a unit, both, you know, it's almost like individually he, 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 he stresses individually do what you got to do defensively in a group. You know, that that's where your creation is. We're going to make you, we're going to let you create defensively, create turnovers, you know they're 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 first in steals. They're first in blocks. We're gonna we're gonna yeah. let you play that. But offensively, we're gonna share the ball. We're gonna find the best available shot. In fact, you'll watch a Houston team sometimes play, and you're like, why are they passing so much? Yeah. And it's because there's an incredible discipline offensively that he's instilled in these guys to be like, 
And and he's built that in his culture that we're in this together. And it's and and really when Kelvin says it's us against the world, and we know this is IU fans, we he he means it. It's like yeah. that there's a mindset there that he instills in his teams that we're gonna we're we're gonna stand against against it all. So yeah. yeah we the, last, to show- the last thing I'll say about Houston. Um yeah, they they're they're great off you know defensively and um the the one kryptonite they kind of have is that, and you see this in their tournament results. They always seem to run into a team that has exactly their level of athlete, but also has an athletic, you know, that has uh, skill. offensive skill to go along with the athleticism. You know, they've lost to Miami um, last year. They lost to Villanova, Baylor, Kentucky, Michigan. They're basically losing to those sort of higher end teams that do have those like six eights. Um, you know, six, seven athletes with skill who can basically just score a little bit more than them, um, you know, in the, uh, you know, in March. So, yeah. So we're going to bring up Indiana. Uh, we have to, you know, we have to, <laughs> um, 12 and six, four and two in conference as, you know, and, and, uh, Jared put out a great piece today about, you know, the importance of the, of Ken Palm and Torvik. But really, you know, looking at the analytics sites, you know, you're looking at a team that's just out of the top quartile of performance. Mm. Yes, we use the unadjusted offense to show you just, you know, how much the efficiencies actually or the the you know the the adjustments help you <laughs> optically. Mm-hmm. And you look at the air offensive rating versus their defensive rating, giving up over a point per possession. And yes. There were games like Army and Florida Gulf Coast that definitely impacted that defensive rating. Mm-hmm. Um, and the offensive rating where you've seen other games like, you know, yeah, you'll have games where you score 50 in the Big Ten. But you've had you've had games where Indiana University has definitely underperformed from a statistical standpoint. And that explains those metrics. Um this is a team that has that, that really has is built and predicated on getting to the line. They're also built and predicated on uh, attacking the paint mm-hmm. and getting their points inside. They are you are seeing more volume of three point shooting and more accurate three point shooting. Um, they are they do share the ball well. They get you know they get assists and you you have players you know especially your bigs who are good passers for college basketball. Um, so you're, you're doing, they're doing, this team does really well on the assists, but they've been outscored by opponents, 180, you know, they've outscored their opponent by 108 points, but they've outscored 61 points from three. And you're going to, you, you're hearing a running theme here that it's like, this team has got to hit outside for them to continue. We saw a little bit of this last night with some of the, the lane packing, you know, you look at last night and you look at the BPMs. And last night, their two best, most efficient players in Kalel Ware and Malik Renu, 7.5 BPM, 5.2 BPM. They're the ones who are at that, close to that one-and-done level. Um, actually, both of them are close. They, they pretty much bracket what you would call a sophomore needing to be, and they're both yeah. sophomores. They they were Zach Eady scored three times the points they did, so they were yeah. taken out of the game. Um. I can argue Indiana is, you know, is, they're they're feeding the post less, and that was true last night. Also, Purdue put the ball in the post three more, three times more than Indiana did. Mm. But you look at BPMs in the negatives. Um, 
you look at um and that's you know three of the players up here that are playing significant over 10 minutes a game have a negative bpm mm-hmm. um xavier johnson we're not gonna you know but it's you know coming back from injury uh his numbers aren't what they were a year ago neither or two years ago nor is trey galloway's from a year ago so what you're dealing with is a team that can this get better yes but one thing i think mike woodson we talk about types and i'm beginning to know i think that in year three and we look at the recruiting profile coming in this is a guy that likes length and i think Mm -hmm. he likes size and i think he's he he can and i and i and again i think he likes size that can drive it drive because you're seeing renew driving more you're definitely seeing because the driving more um he's got anthony walker who was mostly a guy who scored off cuts at miami who's now doing more straight line driving he's trying mm-hmm. to do it with caleb banks um but he's it's it he's not we're not really seeing a whole lot of what you would call wiggle and shiftiness in guards yeah and you look at the so if he has a choice between a six five guy that can just be a power back and a six two guy you know think about you know Walker at Michigan State, which one would he prefer? I think he's going to take the six five guy. Probably. And and that's I and I think a lot of that's just because I think he he sees that and again, they do run quick offensive actions. They have in the three years that he's here. They're not running anything intricate. You know, it's not like Tom Crean where, you know, and where where you saw whole different types of movement patterns. I always used to yeah. joke, yeah, the defense was confused, but so was the offense. So, you know, eventually yeah. a shot went up. The stuff was brilliant, but it wasn't always clear. Um, but I'd also throw out that, you know, or Archie Miller, where it was just so tight that you just saw guys at times it was like, well, we have to make this pass because that's what it says on the board. You you yeah. felt like it was more mechanical. I don't feel like this is mechanical, but I do feel at times it's indecisive. Um, and I would also throw out that age does matter here because you're dealing with bigs that as you're looking at, and again, you saw the performance curve. Um, McKenzie Mbako is probably at the low end of what a one and done or where he should be from a ranking standpoint. Yeah. Is that BPM improving? Yes. Can he get himself? And again, remember these are fluid figures. So you could see him in that six range, I think by the end of the season, right, Mike? I mean, can, I yeah. mean, can yeah, you see that's... that improvement in a half a season? Yeah, I mean, it's possible because, again, it's it's an aggregated score. So, you know, he's got to hit more, but he's definitely, you know, I think some of his early play may have, you know, put him in a little bit of a hole in terms of his numbers. But he's definitely starting to become much more of a threat consistently game to game. But, you know, there's a reason why this team, even though they're at 12 and 6, even though they're, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry, four and three in the conference, another typo. Boy, I was really not happy last night <laughs> when I was redoing the record. I'm like, ah! Don't worry. Yeah, I was, we'll, we'll fix, I we'll was fix it. I was texting you. We're going to fix true. it. So I, I will, just, yeah, I will take the blame for that. So, oh man, no, I us, mean, it was us like, and some of our friends. Yeah. My kid just <laughs> learned how to yell at a television after that game. So, I mean, that's funny. I, you're, you're, you're we're, we're seeing this, we're, we're, we're seeing a program that is in year three under Mike Woodson might be more regressive when you start thinking about Archie Miller and his tenure and you throw mm-hmm. the COVID year into it. And all that being said, none of it matters. Right. I mean, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we, the, that was our last episode, basically. We, yeah, we we, we went uh, in depth on the the chip stack and and such. And none so of that. And, uh, and 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 the and the point is, in the era of the portal, when you're seeing what UConn's done, when you see what Kentucky has done, and how they've shifted, when you know the question's going to be, can I you make the turn that they've made in the last the first two years under Woodson? And I think, you know, you can have always a reasonable level of optimism as a fan that that's going to happen. Um, yeah. I, I I also think though that it's going to be very interesting to watch the machinations with Liam McNeely coming in and nothing else. We'll see if Derek Queen comes. You know, it's still pretty much right on the bubble. We're not really yeah. sure where that's going to go. But looking at will there be a with Xavier Johnson leaving after six years and Anthony Walker as a fifth year leaving. Um what's coming next. And and hopefully, I mean, I think Khalil Ware will be in the NBA next year. So mm-hmm. you're going to have some roster spots that you're looking at where are the upgrades and can they get that player that we're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that they need, obviously, you know, within the discords and other message boards, you know, uh, perusing those last night was, uh, you know, quite a joy. If, uh, if you don't like any uh, basketball, it would be really fun to watch those, but um the um yeah the I would say that you know my take on it is that I, I think a lot of some of this is explainable you know there's not one problem here it's it's maybe um, a, a host of problems that have maybe a few centralizing features in terms of you know commonality I do think that you know from my perspective obviously you kind of talked about sort of like you know the so the coaching perspective um, Woodson's he has an about an eight percent hit rate on his top eighty guard offers. That's reasonably below what his hit rate has been on the um, the front court so far in his tenure. So he's definitely had a decent hit, a number of hits on really upper end uh, forwards and centers. If he were able to match in the backcourt what he's doing in the front court, I don't think we'd be having at least. I don't think we'd completely eliminate these conversations. I think it would greatly increase a lot of the issues. And it's not even from a talent perspective per se. I mean, obviously talent is a big part of it. I think one thing fans really don't realize is that, you know, when you, when you whiff on players too much, it's not just that you're losing, you know, a player that's like ranked 20 and you have to take a kid that's maybe ranked, you know, 130 and all the BPM, you know, and performance um, um, differentials that uh, come with that. I think also the, these just as important is that you may be making a sacrifice on the type of player that you want, not talent, but type. And if Mike Woodson really is insistent on having a very specific type, you know, a kind of a, like you said, a long guard that I would say that honestly, he likes more independently operating guards. Um, I don't think he wants to really draw. I mean, he's great at drawing up ATOs and like scripted sets, you know, coming out of, uh, either timeouts or out of the, the, the end of the half. Mm-hmm. I think he really wants more, like you said, like free flowing and sort of like uh, on the go guards that can make decisions and make actions happen independently by themselves within the normal like game action of, you know, uh, ball screens and things like that. So I think if he had with his type of guards, I think we would probably see the offense open up a lot compared to where it is right now. So he's a little bit trapped, I think, in some of the same um, 
box that Archie Miller found himself trapped in. He couldn't, quite, you know, he had some really good forwards. He couldn't quite get exactly the right kind of guards that could sort of like balance the the offense out. And so he is in a bind trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I actually operate within these uh, constraints? And so, um, so yeah, like you said, we have to see if it's going to change. But um, I, I'm probably long-term not quite as down as some other people are in terms of like the potential. But I do think that he's really kind of with um, – with roster construction recruiting has put himself in a little bit more of a hole than he probably expected. I, 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 he's really struggling to figure out how to get out of it. And, and, and again, I think, you know, you kind of hit the nail on this too, where it's like, you're, you're looking at specific types and you, you, I never want to use the word in the portal era of settling on a player. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there is a, inherent danger when you start talking about high school recruiting and especially when you're talking about guards because when we looked at our model rosters all three of them are using transfers in very unique and real ways and really are basing i mean yukon again a lot of their production is coming out of transfers so there is hope there it's just the question i think for big 10 programs in particular and this is where Again, that this is not a knock on Purdue. It's not a knock on Wisconsin. But you're not looking at guys who are coming in and shooting the ball. Or I'm sorry, that that are that are the same guards that are going to Auburn or Alabama or those SEC or Big Twelve guards. Mm -hmm. And that there, you know, so the reputation of a league, and we're going to talk about that at some point too, kind of matters a little bit too. The question is, can this coaching staff figure out how to make that turn as well? Yeah, and exactly. Get into that area. So, I mean, we'll see. Yep, exactly. We'll see. Yep. So, um, yeah, when we'll return, we'll uh, try to put what happened in the first half of the season or any season into perspective. Next on the X's and Joe's podcast. And welcome back to X's and Joe's. I'm Mike Weemuth, joined by my co-host Bob Motes. Bob, in our last segment, um, national championships. You're and or a conference title. Or um, conference title, yeah, exactly. Getting we're, a we're hanging, hanging some kind of uh, banner somewhere, and for some programs, it is a tournament berth. But it, you know, it's how we spend a lot of time. And I mean, again, Jared brought up a great point. He just had a Substack article in the in the community that talks about what stinks about the analytics is that game one counts the same as game thirty one. Mm-hmm. It it just does, and so those are the those are the facts. And yeah. it doesn't, they don't build in an improvement factor. They don't build in the, the win factor as much, but the, the, the thing that kind of stinks, I think a lot, and this is going to be interesting for the big 10 this year, we're going to see some interesting things happening. I think in the tournament selection committee, mm-hmm. there's been criticism in the past about how many big 10 teams get in. And if there's going to be a year where they look at the big 10 and say, maybe not, maybe mm-hmm. this is a year where there's, three, four big 10 teams that we can actually take because as a, as you look at it and I do use a term stinking pile of average to describe the big 10. It's one of my favorite terms that you use, by the way, I I mean, I really like that one. It, 
and you just look at a Big Ten game and you look at, you know, when, when you see Texas A&M playing Kentucky in, you know, in College Station and you flip over to a Big Ten game and it's like, it's like the game just, it's like, it's like I'm watching in slow motion. There's a, there, there, there is a difference. And I think it's something that it's been over 20 years since the Big Ten has won a national championship. There have been plenty of national runners ups, but at the end of the day, where do you need to be at the end? It's you, you, you be, as the season progresses, you become less system dependent. Yeah. And it's why I think Micah Shrewsbury had a lot of luck at Penn State last year in the Big Ten tournament versus mm-hmm. other better teams. Um, I think it's why you saw other programs kind of jump up and 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 eclipse, you know, because you have to have the talent levels and you have to have the philosophy behind it to actually go beyond your sets, go beyond be, go beyond how your how your offense is functioning. And, 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 and innovation, you're not going to do anything innovative because at this point, everyone's seen everything and they yeah, know how to your, defend Your scout it. is out. So, yeah. And, and everybody else's scouts, if you try somebody, and the other thing is you're not going to walk in after playing 34 games with the team and say, okay, whatever we've been doing that got us to this point is a one seed. We're going to scrap because we're going to confuse our enemy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> and there there have been examples of coaches that have walked in at halftime down 10 and say, okay, we've never tried this defense before. Coach, we're in a regional right final. Yeah. We're in a regional final. <laughs> yeah. We we're we're gonna do this. And this is we've never practiced it. You don't even yeah. know what you're doing with it. Just confuse your you know, if they're confused and you're confused and everyone's confused, maybe we have a chance. I mean, there are stories of that happening in locker rooms. Yeah. Um, there was a time where I was like, I remember seeing Butler where it's like when I saw Butler running a half court trap against UConn in a national championship game going, man, they're throwing in the kitchen sink here. They've clearly yeah. done it, but they've never shown it in a game yeah, or exactly. hearing Shaka smart staff talk at VCU about pinning guys to the baseline versus going up. There were times where you were kind of, where you start noticing those adjustments. Yeah. So getting to that level of privilege where you could actually start having that conversation of that adjustment or sometime, you know, you're not going to get there in November and December, but you can definitely blow yourself up. I think Jawan Howard's finding that at Michigan. Oh yeah. It's possible. Tom Izzo may be finding that at Michigan state. It's possible. Mike Woodson's finding it at Indiana where Mm. in all of these cases, I think my Eric Musselman uh, is finding it at Arkansas, you know, there are multiple fan bases that are going, okay, we were supposed to be better. Yeah. I think Nate Oates would have that conversation. I mean, I'm going down the list of guys where the win loss record hasn't really reflected what was not just fan expect, but roster expectations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, and, it's funny yeah. that, yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, it, it's interesting because um, it's something I've always told you before. I mean, it's it's within March, and it's also throughout the year. Is is this idea that um, the regular season is like you know one unit, and March is a different unit, and a lot of how the functionality of the games goes is just completely different. It's why you know you can see a team like you know we're just talking about Purdue, like Fairleigh Dickinson, how they can have almost uh, it felt like. Edie had almost like a two foot advantage on their center 
in terms of size. I know it's only like eight or like eight inches, which is you know still pretty crazy. But but yeah, I remember like you know being around like you know some Purdue friends. Like, oh, how's Fairly Dickinson going to like you know manage? I mean, he's just going to like you know right over top of them and. And yeah, you get into the game and you see a team from the East Coast that are just like scrapping the ball like crazy. You know, I mean, as soon as Edie catches it, you know, there's like, you know, hands like, you know, like um, trying to you know, pull the ball away from him immediately, which is not something that happened with the same frequency in January and February. So it's, yeah, it, it, it's something that um, I've always said that there are dozens of ways to win 20 games. Um, or a program. There are very few ways to win 30 games. And so we're talking about, you know, sort of that you know, wide versus narrow alley of um, strategic um, choices in building rosters is that to be like a really elite national competitor, that lane is very narrow. It's very hard because you, you have like, let's say just a certain number of kids you can get, you can get like the sweet spot kids, and how many sweet spot kids are there a year? If you like, just really narrowed it down to just the like 33, 80 kids and maybe like, you know, two or three dozen portals, you're not talking about a lot of people. That's just a small percentage of the total number of recruits that are in, uh, in any given cycle in any given year. So a lot of, I think what, you know, happens is that these teams find themselves overcommitted to a style that just doesn't quite fit with March, but they kind of have to do that because that's how they function from October, November, December, January, and February. And there's so much just in terms of the hedging of risk that you have to think about. The teams that really do succeed in March are the ones that don't necessarily have like one Bill Walton or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar scoring 40 points. The teams that you see winning now are teams that have, say, four or five guys that can step up and score maybe 12, 14, 16 points in a given night if some of their other um, teammates are having an off night. And if you look at any um, like game log of any like you know decent player, good player, even elite player, about every three or four games, players going to have an off night. If you have five or six high-end performers, you're much able to hedge that risk better than if you only have two or three. And that's a big um, divider that you see between the teams that do win championships and those that get close, but just not quite. So come in March, remember that, folks. Um, check out the, uh, check out the uh, team uh, logs for uh, BPMs and look at those ones that have like... Uh, not necessarily one at 17 and a bunch are at like six, seven, eight. Look for the ones that have a lot of nines and eights and tens. And more likely than not, you find one of those teams is probably going to be the one that wins it. And so that's a good way to win your office pool or to make your family feel bad about themselves, which we are all about on X's and Joe's. Exactly. And um, just um, so, Mike, again. Uh, thanks for think, you know, thanks for thanks for doing this again. We, uh, we had a great time going through this one. As this painful was as it was, it was still fun. Absolutely. And um, hope you had a good time too. Yeah. Mike and I will be back in a couple of weeks where we're going to get into where his rubber really met the road and the conversation really took off in the last real, I would say, 10, maybe 15 years and this idea of the sweet spot. 
and how the sweet spot was born and how it's evolving. So we'll look forward to uh, you tuning in again. And uh, thanks for doing it. Thanks for being here. Yep. So this endless conversation was brought to you by the Back Home Network. Be sure to check out all the great BHN content, including Assembly Call, Assembly Call, Doing the Work, and Crimson Cast on YouTube and backhomenetwork.com. Until next time, I'm Mike Weemuth. And Bob Boats. Have a good one, everybody.